Well, welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. I am your host, Michael Delaware, and today we're going to explore the early history of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yes, Kalamazoo, the city with the funny name. So come along and join me. So in today's episode, I'm going to be referring to a few different references. The one source is going to be from the Kalamazoo History website, KalamazooMichigan.com, where they cover a brief history of the area of Kalamazoo and Kalamazoo County. And then also a book by Dr. Willis Dunbar, published in 1959, called Kalamazoo and How It Grew. And... Combined with this information, we're going to look at some of the early history of Kalamazoo. Well, first, probably the best place to start was where does the name Kalamazoo come from? Well, to begin, the first name for the city that we know today as Kalamazoo was known as Bronson. And that is because the original founder of the city was a man named Titus Bronson. And he founded the village... Titus Bronson built his first cabin within the modern city limits on Arcadia Creek, west of the present-day West Nedge Avenue. A year later, he replaced it with a permanent cabin on the present site of Bronson Park. The county itself was organized by an act of the territorial legislature and approved by the governor on July 3rd, 1830. The town of Bronson was officially designated as the county seat on May 1st, 1831. Five years later, an influential group of men in the town, dismayed by the apparent eccentricities of Mr. Titus Bronson, Mr. Bronson was accused of and tried and convicted of stealing a cherry tree. And so they were offended by the town being named after such a man, so they renamed the town Kalamazoo. Now, Kalamazoo, the name, comes from the river, as it was known, that ran by the city. But the word Kalamazoo is a of a Native American origin. So let's take a look at some of the different descriptions from the various references that you'll find out there about where the name Kalamazoo comes from, because there is no other city in the world named Kalamazoo. It is unique unto itself. Now, one of the things that everyone can agree upon who looks into the name Kalamazoo is that the name is from Native American origin, but it's gone through quite an evolution. On the early French maps, the Kalamazoo River, as we know it today, was marked as being called Muramec or Malamec or at times it was written as Marami. These names don't sound anything like Kalamazoo. In a British report on the route, followed by explorers to reach Fort St. Joseph at Niles in around 1772, there's reference to a Reconamazoo River, which is getting closer to the name as we know it as Kalamazoo. Now, this is according to Mr. Willis Dunbar. In the same report, however, it also says that the river was also called Pusaw Paca Sippy or 
Iron Mine River. Early settlers found bog iron within the limits of the present city, so many assume that the British report represented an anglicized version of the Indian word, which referred to iron. In later records, the river is called by a variety of names. One is Kika Masung, which means boiling water. This may have referred to the eddies or the rapids in the river, but one of the legends has it that it referred to a race of the boiling kettle. And the version of the legend on that is that that the Native Americans had each fall a foot race from their village near Galesburg to the river. And the goal being to run to the river and back before a pot of water began to boil. Then there is the yarn from a romantic angle involving the promise of an Indian chief to give his daughter to the brave who could run a certain distance before a pot of water boiled dry. In any event, the word Kalamazoo is a word derived from the language of the Potawatomi Indians who once inhabited the area. They were not, however, the first people to live in the Kalamazoo area. The pioneers found in Kalamazoo County mounds or earthworks and garden beds about which the Indians who were living here at the time knew nothing about them. So the mound builders had come before the Native American inhabitants of the region and they did not have any history on who they were. There's also another Native American word called Negi Kanamazoo, which is purported to mean otter tail or stones like otters which has been cited as a possible origin of the name of the river, being that the river rolled stones and made the sound of an otter. Another theory on the word Kalamazoo is that the word meant mirage or reflecting river. And then, of course, the legend is also the image of the boiling water uh, referred to on the fog on the river. So if you look at the historic marker that is near the rest area off of I-94 in Kalamazoo County, you'll see that they refer to the name of the city of Kalamazoo and Kalamazoo County and the river coming from the word meaning boiling water. They don't go much more into detail, so one can only deduce from that that it meant, well, the water was a a rumbling stream or made a lot of bubbles and that sort of thing, and that was why they called it that. The other legend that I mentioned before with the foot race and all of that kind of adds more light into some of that origins theory. So there's a lot of different versions of the story of where the name Kalamazoo came from. It is obviously to some degree greater or lesser from an anglicized version of the Native American language of some term. So it either means one of these words and it was just anglicized by the early settlers like the British or the French or possibly the map makers. Or it comes straight from the Native American tongue, and it's just a word or phrase from a lost language that um, has fallen through the cracks of history. So the earliest residents of the area were the mound builders, and they were considered to be an early race of Native Americans that subsisted on farming. And a number of earthen mounds were attributed to these people, and some of them still exist in the area. There's apparently one that is a prominent one that can be found in downtown Kalamazoo's Bronson Park. 
And the park's notable features includes an Indian mound on its south side. A fountain is also in the park, along with a reflecting pool. Bronson Park also had at one time a lot of very tall trees, but they were destroyed by a killer tornado that went through the park in around 1980. So experts who've researched that early history feel that the Native Americans who later traveled from the north probably exterminated the mound builders in some conflict. The earliest written records tell of the Sioux frequently occupying the region, followed by the Muscoutin or the Miami people. But by the time the white settlers arrived in the area, it was occupied by the Potawatomi tribe, a branch of the Algonquin people. So in 1860, the first white man journeyed through southern Michigan, passing through the area of Prairie Ronde and Climax, and traders occasionally did business in the county more than a century later in 1795. The Treaty of 1795 opened up the Northwest Territory for settlement, and it also set aside a large portion of what was to become Kalamazoo County for a reservation. A later treaty in 1821, known as the Chicago Treaty, opened this plot of land to white settlers, and this became the basis for many of the county's land titles. In 1827, the Indian Reservation was consolidated to the southern end of Kalamazoo County and the northern part of St. Joseph County. Another treaty with the Native Americans in 1833 arranged for 5 million acres of their land in this exchange for, I think it was around $40,000 per the historical record here on the Kalamazoo History Site. And enforcement of the treaty in 1840 required the relocation of the Kalamazoo's Native Americans across the Mississippi River. So there are still pockets of reservations still in the area of Calhoun County for the Potawatomi Indians, and they are located near Athens, Michigan. But the tribe reservation that was near the southern part of Kalamazoo and northern part of St. Joseph after 1840 were moved west of the uh, Mississippi River. So according to Dr. Willis Dunbar's Kalamazoo and how it grew. The first white resident of the area was probably a British fur trader named Burrell, who in 1795 spent the winter at his trading post near what is now Riverside Cemetery. And a Frenchman named Numaville erected the first permanent trading post in 1823. A man named Rix Robinson took over the post and operated it until 1837. The first white settler of the county was a man named Basil Harrison, who was the cousin of the U.S. President William Henry Harrison. Harrison traveled to Kalamazoo County in late 1828 and built his home on the shores of a small lake three miles southwest of what is now Schoolcraft. So that is some of the early part of Kalamazoo County being settled. In fact, there was a famous novel written by James Fenimore Cooper called The Oak Opening, which is said to have been about Basil Harrison. So that's kind of an interesting side note. So other settlers followed quickly. By 1830, over 100 families had settled in the Prairie Ronde area, and within a year, all of the county's eight prairies had been settled. In 1800, the waterways and the Indian trails were the only routes a traveler in the county could follow. 
So settlers constructed the first primitive roads after 1830, the main one being what was known as the Territorial Road. And I've covered a lot of different episodes on the Territorial Road on my podcast. There's also a video on my YouTube channel about tracking the Territorial Road through uh, Battle Creek and Calhoun County. And of course, the Territorial Road went across Kalamazoo County and headed westward. The first plank roads were built around 1845, and the most important one was stretching from Kalamazoo to Grand Rapids. Like Once again, in another episode of this podcast, I went into detail about some of the plank road systems that existed. The Kalamazoo to Grand Rapids route was a well-traveled route of transportation for horses, wagons, and even stagecoaches and the mail delivery system. In fact, Kalamazoo was a major supplier for many years to the village of Hastings, as well as Grand Rapids going into Hastings. And so they would come down through what is present-day Middleville into Hastings from Grand Rapids and from Kalamazoo. They'd go on up through Galesburg, on up into Hastings on the plank road systems that were there. And then, of course, the plank roads soon were replaced by a more faster transportation called the railroad. And the Michigan Central Line first spanned the territory between Detroit and Kalamazoo in 1846, and its link to Chicago was completed in 1852. So by 1905, at least six railroads connected Kalamazoo with the rest of the continent. But between the time of the railroad and the automobile, there was the short-lived time of the interurban systems, which were attractive to short-distance passengers and even freight shippers as a form of transportation as, as well as transporting goods between the smaller villages and communities. And there was an interurban line that ran all the way from Jackson uh, through Kalamazoo on into St. Joseph. So there's uh, quite a lot of history with the interurban, and I'll probably do another podcast episode strictly on some of the history and origins of that. But I did a YouTube video on that, and I plan to do a lot more because it's a fascinating history of that old electric railroad-type transportation system that existed all over the state of Michigan and all over uh, the eastern portion of the United States. And it's still in existence today in some cities. Uh, you'll see examples of that in New Orleans and San Francisco. And there's even a few over in the Philadelphia area. So we get into the first quarter of the 20th century, and we have the introduction of the gas-powered vehicles and hard surface roads. And that kind of uh, brings us up to present time of the transportation history for Kalamazoo County. So some of the early industry of Kalamazoo County, uh, the first thing that you would look at would be the fact that it was always early on a very strong farming community and it today is still a fairly strong force in the county for economic development in the early 1850s an iron works was established and they produced a lot of iron products throughout the united states prior to the civil war and they provided iron for the civil war many of the manufacturing shops and milling community was established along the kalamazoo river valley as a lot of the early milling history of course depended upon the flow of rivers 
One of the early high-yielding crops in the Kalamazoo area was celery. In fact, large areas of land were known as the celery flats around Kalamazoo. A lot of that land today has become suburbanized in residential areas today, but at one time it produced a pretty large crop of celery for most of Michigan and the eastern United States. And there are certain areas of the Kalamazoo County over there that are still referred to as the Celery Flats. In fact, there's a city park called the Celery Flats that you can go visit, and that refers to a lot of the early agriculture for the area being around celery. There's still a few areas that are still producing the crop, but today a large percentage of the crops that are grown in Kalamazoo County consist of corn and soybeans in the modern times. But some of the other industries that were brought into existence over the many years in Kalamazoo and that it was known for was uh, paper products like cardboard and box manufacturing they also have had a, a huge industry with some automobile manufacturing, cigar manufacturing, stove, and even buggy manufacturing during the time when buggies were popular. And they also uh, today produce windmills. One of the more notable companies that you might recognize is it was the original home of Gibson Guitar. The Gibson Guitar Company or Gibson Guitar Corporation was originally incorporated as the Gibson Mandolin Guitar Company Limited in October of 1902. And it was created by craftsman Orville Gibson. One of his budget models was named the Gibson Kalamazoo Melody Maker Electric Guitar. Operations for the guitar company were originally in Kalamazoo, but they later moved to manufacturing in Memphis, Tennessee. And some of the company is also in Bozeman, Montana today. Another well-known company that operated in Kalamazoo was part of the paper industry and gave the city a name of being a paper city, and that was the Allied Paper Corporation. And it operated several mills in the city and employed over 1,300 people in Kalamazoo during the late 1960s. As the uh, forests of the West Michigan area were logged, paper mills began to close. Now, I mentioned some of the automotive industry. In the early 20th century, Kalamazoo was the home of the brass-era automobile company called Barley. And then also, Kalamazoo was the headquarters of the Checker Motors Company, the former manufacturer of the Checkers Cab, which also stamped uh, sheet metal parts for other manufacturers. Checker closed in June of 2009, a victim of the late 2000s recession. Today, there's some other industries in Kalamazoo. There is the Stryker Corporation, and it was a Kalamazoo-based, and it makes uh, medical equipment. Fabrical is a supplier of food services and other containers produced from thermofoam plastic. And of course, there is the Upjohn Company, which is a pharmaceutical research and manufacturing firm, which was founded in 1886 in Kalamazoo. In late 2003, the Upjohn Company assets became part of the Pfizer Corporation. And Kalamazoo today is also home to Western Michigan University, which most people from the area know. Western Michigan University, of course, is a large public university. 
It also is the home of Kalamazoo College, a private liberal arts college, and it is also the home of Kalamazoo Valley Community College, which is a two-year community college. So Kalamazoo has a, a large foundation in its history of manufacturing uh, because of the rivers and the milling industry that in the early days, and it also has a big educational history, as well as a lot of innovative type industries that have made its mark on the world. So as Kalamazoo grew and the county grew over the many years, the main forms of communication in the early days was the newspaper system. And the Kalamazoo Gazette is the county's earliest newspaper. It is still one of the state of Michigan's oldest newspapers. Many other papers were published in Kalamazoo during the early years, including the Kalamazoo Telegraph, which ran from 1844 to 1916. In the southern part of Kalamazoo County, in Schoolcraft, that village was part of the Underground Railroad, and there was a stopping point on the Underground Railroad through there at a Dr. Nathan Thomas's house, which is still being preserved today as a museum in the Schoolcraft area. But there's a lot of other interesting tidbits of history that a lot of people don't know about Kalamazoo. Um, some of them include the Air Zoo Museum, which is the 10th largest non-government aviation museum in the nation. And it is nationally recognized uh, for their restoration efforts. And it's now a Smithsonian-affiliated museum. And that's located in the Portage area or southern part of Kalamazoo City. And if you've ever been out to Augusta, which is also part of the Kalamazoo County, there's the Barn Theater. And it is Michigan's oldest summer stock theater at 60 plus years of age or older. And there's a lot of actors that started their careers performing at the barn. Some of the names that they list here on the Kalamazoo website is Tom Wopat, Melissa Gilbert, Jennifer Gardner, Kim Zimmer and Dana Delaney, they all performed at the Barn Theater. Another interesting note, I, I mentioned that the celery uh, production and the crop that they had was well known in the area and it supplied celery to all parts of the United States at one point. Another crop that most people aren't aware of that um, was refined by a company called the A.M. Todd Company, and that is peppermint. 90% of the world's supply of peppermint grew within a 75-mile radius of Kalamazoo, and much of the refinement was done by a man named Albert M. Tom and his company. So that's kind of an interesting footnote in history, and it was uh, in the early 20th century that the company was founded. And finally, there's a really interesting historical note about the city of Kalamazoo is that Bronson Park in 1856 was the only place that Abraham Lincoln ever visited in Michigan. And he spoke at the Republican Convention at that time. And he was a candidate for senator in Illinois. And he was one of these speakers. So it is the only place in Michigan at Bronson Park where uh, Abraham Lincoln ever spoke. And another funny story is that the Glenn Miller Band made a famous song in the 1940s called I've Got a Gal in Kalamazoo. And the students at the Kalamazoo College decided that they needed a real gal in Kalamazoo. And they held a contest and they voted for Sarah Woolley to be that gal. So Sarah actually traveled the country 
representing Kalamazoo as part of the war bond drive and the USO dances during World War II. So that's kind of an interesting footnote in history, too, about Kalamazoo and the name Kalamazoo and the gal from Kalamazoo. So that's going to conclude today's episode looking at some of the early history and stories of Kalamazoo, the city, as well as Kalamazoo, the county. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope that you will take some time to write a review on whatever app that you are listening to about my podcast. It always helps to have people do that because it puts my podcast higher in rankings and people will certainly subscribe to that a lot easier. And it helps build the listenership for a larger audience of fans for Southwest Michigan history. Sometimes people wonder or ask me why I do this sort of work and why I've been doing this for the time that I've been doing um, and why I have a podcast and why I focus so much on my YouTube channel and trying to bring history. And people ask me, are you making money with this and that sort of thing? And I'm absolutely not making hardly any money with this. I, I barely uh, recover 1% of the money that I invest in the work that I do here. And I just want to tell you for a moment why I'm doing what I'm doing and why I put the time and energy into bringing history to people in the Southwest Michigan area. One of the things that I became aware of many years ago was that history was not really taught in schools anymore. It's somewhere in the 1970s they replaced it with social studies. And it was kind of a blurred version of history and it became more of social sciences. And and history as a subject certainly wasn't being taught in the way that had been taught early on in the history of the United States. And certainly not local history, which is always neglected. And it's certainly a great gap in our education, and it certainly affects us as a nation as a whole when we don't understand the path. One of the things that I've always been passionate about myself is I always read, and I've for many years I was just an avid reader of history books. And it's just one of the things that I love to do. And I love learning about things and, and discovering how things connect in timelines of history. And so at some point a few years ago, I decided to take my skills with video making and create a YouTube channel or start working on my YouTube channel again. I'd had a YouTube channel established since 2010, and I did a lot of sporadic type videos on it, but I didn't really have a direction. And then a couple of years ago during the pandemic, I had some time to really rethink what I wanted to do with the channel. And I really enjoyed creating video content and editing, but I wanted to find something I was passionate about. And the only thing I kept circling back to after I tried to explore a lot of uh, regional travel and bring people's attention to the region. The thing that I that I tapped into was I that I was most passionate about was history and learning about local history myself. So I thought, well, what if I just took a journey of learning about local history and sharing it with others? And that's kind of how my YouTube channel started taking off a little bit more. Then I launched this podcast to kind of augment that work and provide more information for people. And it's been quite an interesting journey. And I established my podcast in 2022, and I'm in my first season. And I just wanted to to kind of tell you why I'm doing this. You know, I really want people to be passionate about local history and knowing about it. And it brings a pride to the community when you have a sense of pride of the origin of the history. If you don't know the past, 
you are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past in the future. And there's a lot of truth to that statement. And there's many ways that it's been said. But if you really want to understand what's going to happen in the future, you should understand the past. And I am a wholehearted believer in that philosophy uh, because you can see the patterns that happen in the world today that have occurred over and over again. And it's a lot of it is ignorance of history. And so it's fun to tell stories and it's fun to learn stories, but it's also very inspiring to learn how people overcame obstacles at times that were so different from our own. And that's one of the things that I'm just very passionate about right now. And I really hope that when I put out these episodes on my podcast that people are really being inspired to not only continue to listen to my podcast and share it with others and all of that sort of thing. It goes along with putting out any kind of content these days, but also just... Um, maybe cracking a book open themselves or listening to an audio book and learning something more about the area they live in or the nation they live in and becoming a wiser person as a result. And probably by doing so, we'll all change the world that we live in to make it a better place. And I think it's very important for young people to learn and be passionate and about history and knowing what history is, and not trying to cancel or erase history, but to stand back, look at it, and learn the lessons of the past. So rather than tearing down monuments and statues and trying to change names on buildings and erase the memory of something because you didn't like it or you didn't like that portion of history, to turn it around and really take history for what it is, and it's an opportunity to learn how not to repeat the mistakes of the past. And in doing so, they also will discover and find that it is an opportunity to be inspired in the future about things that you could learn from the lessons of the past. And I think that's where a lot of innovation is sitting there waiting to happen because there were a lot of innovative people in the past that did some amazing things that if you listen to my podcast, you'll find you say, wow, they were doing that back then. And some of those things could probably be translated in a different form today and create a more innovative society. So I'll get off my stump now and move on, but I just thought I would take a minute to kind of tell you a little bit about that and the reasoning behind what I'm doing. And so if you like the work that I'm doing here and the way that you can help me is obviously to share my work with others. So more people listen in and tune in as well as, you know, uh, you know, I don't make a lot of money at this level of podcasting and video making. So any monetary support that you want to do and contribute is certainly welcome. There are some links on my website, michaeldelaware.com that you can take advantage of. There's a way you can make a direct donation to the work I'm doing on that website. And it's also, you'll find those links on my YouTube channel. And I also have a merchandise page where you can buy some t-shirts and things like that, sweatshirts and hoodies. And, uh, you know, help all the money kind of helps to support the work that I'm doing on these projects. So until next time, when we take another journey into history and we travel back in time to explore some tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thanks for coming along with me. Thanks for listening today. And I hope that you will join me next time. 